Our epistle lesson this morning is found in Hebrews 10. We're going to pick back up in verse 26 and read through the end of the chapter. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would guide us by your word this morning. Teach us and open our eyes to see wonderful and powerful and good things in this portion of your scripture. We are here to listen to you, Father. Ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In the 1920s in Squim, Washington, there lived a young boy named Joe Rance. Joe lived with his family in a large, mostly unfinished farmhouse that Joe and his father Harry had built with their own hands. Joe's father was trying to make it as a farmer. He was growing different crops. He was raising cattle for both milk and for meat. His stepmother, Thula, was raising his four younger siblings, and she mostly left Joe alone. She actually wasn't a big fan of her stepson, But after the Great Depression struck in 1929, dozens of farming families all over Squim, Washington, just walked away. They picked up their stuff, they loaded as much as they could into their cars, and they drove off in search of a better life. In one rainy day in November 1929, at the age of 15, Joe got off the Ford Model A school bus. He walked up the muddy driveway to his home And he saw his father's Franklin loaded up with luggage, luggage on top, luggage in the back, and he saw his four siblings in the back of the car all squished together. And Joe looked at his father and he asked, what's up, Pop? Where are we going? His father looked him in the eyes and he said, we can't make it here, Joe. There's nothing left for us here. But son, the thing is, Thula wants you to stay here. I'd stay with you, but I can't. The little kids need a father more than you do. And with that, Harry got into his Franklin. He shut the door. He cranked it up, and he drove off. 
he left his son standing there on the front porch of that house that they had built together. You can imagine the pain that struck a 15-year-old boy to know that he had just been abandoned. He had just been left alone to fend for himself. And for many years after that painful day, Joe Rance avoided his father. He avoided the mention of his father. During college at the University of Washington, where he rode in Seattle, he found out his father lived not too far from the campus. He would occasionally drive by with his girlfriend, but he wouldn't stop and say hello. He avoided him. He avoided the very thing that caused the most significant pain in his life. And y'all, that's a normal human reaction. Right? It's normal for us to avoid pain. That's why it's called pain, because it's painful. And we want to avoid it. We avoid the things that cause us pain and that make life difficult. We avoid coworkers who slander us in the office. We hide from close relationships when we've been betrayed. We avoid addressing difficult issues in our life or in our marriage because we we don't want to face a painful reality. And when we feel the struggles of life, the pains of life weighing down on our souls, we want to avoid God. That's what these early Christians were experiencing. They were feeling the pains of persecution. They were feeling the pains of aligning themselves with Jesus. They were feeling the mounting pressures of life, and they were tempted to shrink back from God and not simply avoid him, but to turn away from him and to turn back to a form of Judaism. But the preacher exhorts them at the end of this passage, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. What gets you through those tough seasons in life, it's not pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. It's not more work. It's not trying harder. It's not self-help books. It's not even having a higher self-esteem. We live in a world that is affirming you more than ever, but we are self-medicating more than ever. So it's certainly not feeling better about yourself What gets you through tough seasons is faith in God. We are not those who shrink back. We are those who have faith and preserve their souls. The Christian pilgrimage is a call for persevering faith in the face of pain and the pressure of life. But what's God give to you to support that long, arduous Christian life? The long road of Christian discipleship. What do you need to encourage your faith? to bolster your perseverance so that you can run the race and keep the faith till the end. First thing that we see in this passage is that you need to receive God's warning. Verses 26 through 31 is the second of two really difficult passages in the book of Hebrews, and frankly, in the whole of the Bible. We look at these verses and we wonder to ourselves, am I this person? Am I the one who he's talking about going on sinning deliberately? Have I trampled underfoot the Son of God? Have have I outraged the Spirit? Have I committed what they call the unpardonable sin? Now, a few weeks ago, Chuck Chuck handled these uh, warning passages like this when he preached from Hebrews 6. I'd really encourage you to go listen to that sermon as to the role of these warning passages and how, what they, how they play out in the life of our perseverance. And so instead of rehashing that sermon, I'm just going to remind you of two quick things. 
The first is that this passage in Hebrews 6 is concerned with a particular sin, and it's the sin of apostasy. It's not speaking to those who've stumbled into addiction. It's not speaking to those who struggle with uh, uncontrollable anger or lust. Apostasy means that someone has become a part of the household of faith, and then they later abandon that faith. They know the truth of God, but they turn against that truth. They harden their hearts to it. Apostasy is an intentional, deliberate, and informed turning against Jesus and renouncing your faith in him. And that's what this passage in verses 26 through 31 is speaking to. And then the second thing we can say is that the goal of these warning passages is to arrest spiritual drift, to arrest spiritual decline. They're meant to alert you to the dangers of remaining in spiritual decline and in sluggishness, to the dangers of feeding the desires of the flesh. And like the psalmist in Psalm 73, when you are alerted to this reality that you have been brutish before God, you enter into the sanctuary of God and you can discern the end of those actions and you make God the strength of your heart and your portion forever. These warning passages are meant to arrest any spiritual drift that may be going on in your life. And so let these passages like this alert you to areas in your life where you may be going astray, where you may be drifting away from the fundamental truths of the scriptures. And let them reassure you of God's commitment to your spiritual well-being. He puts up these roadblocks, the roadblocks of these warnings, and says, do not enter. Go no further. Turn back and draw near. Draw near to God. And so receive his warnings. And then the second thing you need to encourage your faith is to recall God's provision. Like a skilled physician of souls, the preacher cuts the heart with a strong warning, and then he applies the spiritual ointment of encouragement. Beginning in verse 32, he says, But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. In the former days when these brothers and sisters received the good news of Jesus, they made great sacrifice for him. And he's saying, remember how God provided for you in those moments, in those moments of sacrifice. And the depth of their sacrifice and pain is actually seen better in light of their culture. These were Jewish converts. And in the Jewish faith at that time, all of life revolved around the synagogue. It was the center of family life. It was the center of social life. It was the center of the economy and local government and even education for children. And so to follow Jesus was to abandon all that. To follow Jesus was to abandon social status. To follow Jesus was to remove yourself and your family from education in the Jewish synagogue. And in some cases, it was to be disowned by your family, to lose your family for the sake of Jesus, and to lose whatever inheritance or property that you may have received or were going to receive as your inheritance. So the preacher reminds them that they joyfully gave up those possessions because there was a greater provision of God offered to them in Jesus Christ. 
and that far greater possession. He says it's a better possession and an abiding one. That far greater possession is Jesus himself and all the benefits that come along with Jesus. He's given to you as the abiding sacrifice. He's given to you as the abiding high priest, the one through whom you enter into the presence of God. In Jesus, we're made right with God. In Jesus, we're made children of God and we're made co-heirs with him of all the heavenly blessings. In Jesus, we're renewed in the whole man after the image of God. In Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit who strengthens us in our weaknesses. And when we're too weak to pray, he's the one who prays on our behalf. In Jesus, we receive renewed bodies at the resurrection And we rule and we reign with Jesus on a renewed earth. He's given us all of those spiritual blessings. You're able to carry the cross of sacrifice because the gift of Jesus is far greater than the sacrifices that you will make in this life. So recall all the ways that God has provided for you, provided for you in Jesus and how that provision has freed you to make previous sacrifices throughout your life. You'll see his hand at work then, and you'll, you'll find the grace to see his hand at work now in your present struggles. And so receive his warning, recall his provisions, and then the last thing you need to encourage your faith is to rest in God's promise. Look at verses 35 and 36. It says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Then he quotes Habakkuk 2. He says, Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. To do the will of God is to live by faith. To run the race of faith, it's to lay down all pretense of self-sufficiency and to spend your whole life relying on the sufficiency of Jesus for you. And when you get to the end, having lived your life by faith, when Jesus, the coming one, when he comes again, you will receive the promised reward from God. He makes that promise to you, and that promised reward is not merely the salvation of your souls. It's certainly that. It's not less than that, but it is more It's what Hebrews 11 and 12 says, strengthened the saints of old to face obstacles. It's what Hebrews 11 and 12 will call Mount Zion, the city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city with foundations whose designer and builder is God. That's the promise. Habakkuk 2 later says that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. That's the promise. The whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of God. And when you persevere in faith, finishing the race of faith, God's promise to you is that when Jesus comes in all his glory and all of his power, you will dwell with him there. You will dwell with him in the presence of God on a renewed earth. Y'all, there will be no more sadness There will be no more tears. There will be no more pain. That's his promise. There will be only joy. 
There will be only delight. There in that place at that time, God will make his dwelling place with man. And we will be his people, and God himself will be with us as our God. That's his promise to you. Rest in that promise. The 16th century Anglican bishop, John Hooper, he was martyred under the reign of Queen Mary I. He once wrote from prison that loss of goods is great, but loss of God's grace and favor is far greater. There's neither joy nor adversity in this world that can appear to be great if it is weighed with the joys and the pains in the world to come. He's picking up on what Paul says in Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And y'all, that's not just heaven. That's when heaven meets earth in a new creation. You get to live there and reign with Jesus there. That's his promise to you. Let your faith be encouraged unto perseverance this morning. Receive God's warning. Recall his provision and rest in his promises. And he will strengthen you. He will strengthen your faith unto perseverance. Let's pray. Father, we say that with the psalmist that my flesh and my heart may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We are weak and we need your strength. Would you give us your spirit in a special way to minister these truths to our hearts? Would we fight the fight of faith to the end and persevere because we know you are more committed to us than we are to you. Give us strength, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.